Well, g'day everyone. My name is Dave, if we haven't met before. Happy Father's Day uh, to you. I first became a father 19 years ago. That was my first Father's Day. Here's a photo of me uh, in some of those early days. And he's, I haven't aged a day, have I? I look absolutely terrific uh, then. Uh, but whatever the case, that's me in those early days. Now, I experienced a lot of emotions uh, in those first few weeks and months. Happiness, joy, love, a new kind of love. Um, but there was one emotion that dwarfed all of them. And this emotion came after a couple of weeks and months. And that emotion was anxiety, worry. I realized my life had been unbelievably, unfixably, permanently, irreversibly changed by the new relationship that I had. The new relationship with my beautiful daughter, Sarah. But I had no idea what to expect until I was in the middle of it. I realized after a few weeks that this small child you know, it's not like a pet. It's not a goldfish. You can't just walk away and leave her. It's actually going to change everything. And so I had to ask and answer a whole bunch of questions um, in those first few months. Uh, what will my life now look like as a father? What does it look like for me uh, to be a dad? What is my entire life going to look like? What have I signed up for? You know, um, I've been really blessed by God to be a dad six times over. And each of my children uh, are wonderful. There's no favorites. No, no, I'm serious. There's no favorites. Love all of them. Uh, they're all terrific. Um, but as significant as becoming a father has been in all of those occasions, um, it's actually not been the most significant event in my life. The most significant event in my life happened around seven years after that first photo was taken. And that's the day that I became a Christian. Nothing comes close to that in my life. Becoming a Christian has been the best thing I have ever done. The most important, significant thing. Uh, that's ever happened to me. You know, someone told me the truth about Jesus, and even though I'd heard it a million times, probably two million times, for the first time ever, it, it connected, it clicked, I got it, I believed, I was converted. Now, initially, I experienced several emotions, happiness, joy, love, a new kind of love, but after a while, as those first days turned into weeks and months, they began to be dwarfed by another emotion, the emotion of anxiety, worry, I knew my life had been eternally and irreversibly changed by the new relationship I had with God. I knew that to be true and a fact. But actually, in those first few days as a Christian, first few months and actually years, I had no idea what it looked like. I had to answer and ask several questions for myself, deep, important questions. What is my life going to look like now? that I'm a believer in God, now that I'm a Christian? What does, it mean for me, what does it mean for me to actually be a Christian? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, like the Bible says? What have I signed up for? Now, the truth is, I'm not alone, am I? In my experience, I'm not alone. It could be that you're uh, watching this morning or whenever you're tuning in, um, and you think you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. But those thoughts and that faith actually hasn't affected your life in any sort of cohesive way whatsoever. And so you've actually probably found yourself in a position where you're just not sure where you stand with God. Or it could be that you're watching this right now and you know you're a Christian, you know for a fact, maybe a Christian of long standing or a Christian of just a few months or weeks. But as you review your Christian life, you find yourself disappointed. You review your Christian life and you view it with a sense of frustration and failure. You haven't found the change you wanted. It hasn't been what you thought it would be. You committed to Christ, but you no longer have the zeal that you had when you were first a believer, or maybe you've never had that zeal. 
You're not quite sure what it's meant to look like. Or it could be that today, as you watch, you're not, you're not a Christian and you know you're not a Christian. But you're not a hardened atheist or anything like that. You've got no hostility towards God or Jesus. But truth be told, it's actually more a lack of clarity about what Christianity actually is that is preventing you moving forward in your spiritual sort of investigation into God and Jesus. In other words, what is Christianity? And what will it look like in your life to actually be a Christian? My friends, if that is you, and even if you're not in any of those positions, I want to say two things. Firstly, I don't believe it's an accident you're watching right now. It's not an accident you're watching right now. God doesn't waste our years or our minutes or our seconds. And more wonderfully than that even, God isn't silent. He's not a silent God off above the universe watching, uh, but mute, not telling us anything. He's a God who speaks. He has spoken to us in the Bible through his word. And the passage we're looking at today the interaction that Jesus has in particular with his disciples and his followers cuts right to the heart of these questions. What does it actually look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What can we expect? What have we actually signed up for? What does it look like? Yes, eternally. Yes, after this life. Yes, heaven or hell. Those are important questions, but also today, tomorrow, the next week and the next month. My hope is that these questions, my prayer, is that these questions are answered as we look at this passage today. Now, as we just had wonderfully read for us, uh, the New Testament, the, the passage in the Bible that we're really focusing on today is from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is a biography of Jesus written by a man called Luke. And we're looking at chapter 9, an interaction that takes place. Chapter 9 is an awesome chapter of the Gospel of Luke. The first eight and a half, nine chapters of Luke have really been focused on Jesus presenting his identity, establishing his credentials, his teaching, his preaching, his doing miracles, all for the express purpose of announcing to everyone who he is. But chapter 9 acts as a kind of um, a pivot point for the biography of Jesus here in Luke. Because it's right here at chapter 9 that Jesus announces his identity, confirms who he is, and then pronounces and sets off on his mission. So first eight chapters, this is who I am. Chapter 9, maybe the beginning of chapter 10 as well, this is what I'm going to do. And then the remainder of the Gospel of Luke, he sets out doing just that. This interaction starts with a question you can see it in verse 18 and verse 19. Jesus asks his followers, who do the people say that I am? Who, are, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets long ago has come back to life. How would you summarize what the crowds say about Jesus? Oi, they don't have the foggiest who Jesus is. They don't know. They know he's a good man, a godly man, a religious guy without a doubt, but they're confused. They're not sure. Who is Jesus? Let me ask you now, in the privacy of your own mind, don't worry about the person to your left or right, how would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Over the years, many people, billions of people, have tried to answer that question. It makes perfect sense, of course. Jesus is the most influential human being who's ever lived. But what you'll actually find when you dig deeper into the answers and the opinions about Jesus is that these answers are often at odds with one another. For example, just consider how Jesus is portrayed in art. 
No one has inspired as much artwork as Jesus of Nazareth. Beautiful paintings, sculptures, and pictures. But of course, what you realize when you look at the artwork about Jesus, most of which is painted thousands of years after him, at least from the 1500s onwards, is that this artwork often portrays the agenda of the artist more than the actual reality of Jesus. For example, you go to Europe, what's Jesus look like? He looks like he's an Abba. Okay, he's got blonde hair and blue eyes. You go to Africa, what's he look like? Well, he looks like he's African. You go to Asia, well, you've got Asian Jesus there. The artwork is often portraying the agenda of the one who's painted the pictures. Believe it or not, that's always been the case when people have tried to put Jesus into picture form. Most of the artwork we have of Jesus is, as I said, from the 15th century onwards. But actually, we do have a piece of artwork of Jesus that dates all the way back to the second century, all the way back to the ancient world. And it's actually the very first picture of Jesus that we have. I'm going to put it on the screen for you now. Check this out. This is called the Alexamenos Graffiti. It's dated from ancient Rome around 200 AD. The reason it's called the Alexamenos Graffiti is because in Latin there, what it says is, this is Alexamenos worshipping a god. It's an image of, of two men, one worshipping the other. Here is a man, Alexamenos, worshipping his god who's hung up on a cross, crucified. But in case you think this is a picture which is meant to complement either Alexamenos or his god, make no mistake, the crucifixion in the ancient Roman world was no different than the electric chair or hanging on the noose. It was a thing of great disrespect and disgrace to happen to someone. In case you can't see, just to make it very clear, this is actual imagery um, mocking Jesus. The image of Jesus doesn't have a human's head but has a donkey's head. The earliest image of Jesus that we have is an attempt to insult and vilify him. My dear friends, whatever your perspective of Jesus, let's be very clear about something. He has always divided opinion. Today, it's no different, is it? Every religion, every political party, nearly every individual has an opinion. Jesus is a good man, a kind man, a godly man, a holy man. Jesus is God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus is a prophet or a priest. Jesus is a fraud, a figment of imagination, a fake. Confusion abounds, and yet it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. Because Jesus, as displayed in the eyewitness accounts of his biographies in the Bible, Jesus is very anxious indeed that we know for certain who he is. Check it out. After hearing the crowds have no idea what... What, what to make of him? Verse 20, Jesus turns to his disciples, his followers, and he says this, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Again, what would you say? Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, who often speaks on behalf of all of them, he steps up and verse 20 finishes by saying, Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now, just hold on for a moment. What's a Messiah. It's not a word you hear in, in everyday speech. Messiah is a Hebrew word, and Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament of the Bible. The Jewish people spoke it and still speak a modern version of it. And the word Messiah means promised Savior King. Okay, Messiah means promised Savior King. The word Christ is the Greek version of that word. So Christ and Messiah are pretty much interchangeable words, meaning promised Savior King. In the first part of the Bible, before Jesus lived, that we call the Old Testament, there'd been heaps of prophecies about a future saviour king, a Messiah, who was going to come and lead and save God's people. 
And so when Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, you are God's Messiah, he's got it absolutely right. Jesus is the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies. Jesus is God's promised Savior King. And yet, check this out. Even though Peter identifies Jesus' title absolutely correctly, he's also got it wrong. Because when Peter uses the word Messiah, he's bringing with him a set of external expectations, which mean that even though his correct assumption and correct identification of Jesus' title is correct, his understanding of who Jesus really was and what he would do was completely wrong. You see, Peter, the Jewish people, when they say Messiah, man, they're expecting a soldier, a general, a warrior, king, a king who's going to come and establish a physical kingdom on that earth, a king who's going to overthrow the oppressors and the suppressors of the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people had a long history, and of course, tragically, still do, of being oppressed by external forces. In the Old Testament, you see heaps of oppression of the Jewish people. At Peter and Jesus' time, it was the Romans. So Peter thought, Jesus the Messiah is going to overthrow the Romans. But Jesus is about to give him what will at first seem to be incredibly bad news. Jesus makes it clear here and elsewhere, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the King. But my kingship will look very different to what you expect. My reign and my rule will not be about power. It's not going to be about dominance. It's not going to be what you consider to be victory. It's going to be about service. It's going to be about suffering. Look at verse 22 here of Luke chapter 9. And before I read this, I want to make it really clear that what we're about to read is incredibly important. This is the moment when Jesus doesn't just confirm his identity as the Messiah. He's, he's done that and he does it again. But here he reveals for the very first time to his disciples then and for us now reading it, what his life's mission would be all about. What his kingship, his reign and his rule would entail, what his purpose was to be. Look what he says, verse 22. And he said, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, just if we can keep that verse up there on the screen. I want to say, I know there's a lot of details in there which could be confusing, but let's just try and summarize for a few moments what Jesus says here. He says he's going to suffer many things and be rejected. He's going to be killed, but come back to life. The disciples were expecting a victorious conqueror, but how would you describe how Jesus summarizes his mission on earth? Not success, but suffering. Not royalty, but rejection. Not diamonds and jewels and riches and authority, but death. Yes, hope to come the resurrection, but not before the grave. Is it any wonder people were confused by Jesus? You know, it's not possible to investigate the person of Jesus of Nazareth for very long at all to realize that this is a man who has his own culture, his own values, who comes at life with his own set of expectations and reality, a unique set of expectations and reality, the like of which the earth had never seen before. Jesus says a lot of things there in telling his disciples that he's come to suffer, be rejected, and die. There's many things we could spend a lot of time thinking about. But there's one above them all 
that I'm desperate, and I believe Jesus is desperate for us to hold on to at this very moment. The key thing that I think Jesus is telling us here that he's making very clear to everyone is that at the center of his life, the heartbeat of his existence is death. His mission is his death. It's his target. It's what he's aiming for. And that's captivating, isn't it? It's unique. Yeah, of course, we're all going to die. And of course, we've all heard stories of people sacrificing their lives before for, for, for good deeds and for worthwhile causes. Absolutely. But this is different. Do you see that? This is Jesus saying, my life is about my death. My life's purpose is accomplished in my death. Now, this isn't what you'd expect um, from a man who's just identified himself as a king. It's not what you'd expect from a man who's just identified himself as the son of God. Can you imagine the disciples' reaction? You know, they thought they were going to be following a man who's going to have power and authority and overthrow the Romans, but instead they've got a man who says, my life's purpose is suffering, rejection, and death. This would be like your, your favorite footy team, whatever code it is. Okay, we can talk about that later, but your favorite footy team, which has lost for years and years and years. So it's like being a, a Newcastle Knights fan or something like that. You know, you've lost for years and years and years. And finally, you sign the world's greatest player. Okay, the world's best player is going to come to your team. And finally, you think we're going to win. We're going to, we're going to do it. We're going to overtake everyone and actually uh, have victory for the first time. But instead of that, this guy comes. And not only do you keep losing, but he actually declares that the very purpose of his arrival was to dismantle your club completely. That's how the disciples must have felt. Now, I think we can all agree this is a fairly unique way to portray yourself as a leader. But here's what I'm, I'm keen for you to see at this very moment. You see, what Jesus does next is just as startling. He's just getting started. You see, what he does is he moves from explaining his identity and his mission. Get that? He has moved from explaining who he is and what he's come to do to telling his disciples and his followers what their identity and mission would be in order to follow him he's moved from explaining who he is and what he's come to do to telling us what our identity and what our mission would have to be about in order for us to follow him the way that we're meant to what it really means to be a christian after taking a breath after telling them his mission look at verse 23 then he said to them all whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Before I was a pastor, uh, I was in the army. Uh, and in the army, it's like any business, any big business, uh, there's a lot of different jobs that you can do. And I, I had a whole bunch of them. But by far and away, my favorite job within the army was I was a recruit instructor at Kapuka. Kapuka is the place where we do our Australian army do its... Um, recruit training. So if you join the army right now, you will go to Kapuka and you'll be greeted there for 12 weeks by lovely people uh, and be turned into a soldier. The reason it was my favorite job was I was literally paid and employed to shout at people. It was just, that's why I've become a pastor as well, just I'm kidding, but it was really, that's your job. Your success in this job was to make people quit because you want to make sure the army is a high standard. So you're trying to make it a tough environment to grow people you know, it was just a wonderful, <laughs> it was a wonderful experience, particularly as I'd been on the receiving end of it. Now, part of you've got a lot of different things that you do within that 12 weeks when people sign up for their first time. 
But part of what my job and my role was, was to do exit interviews with people when they did quit. Around 50% of people would quit in that first 12 weeks. And my role was to sit with people and ask them why. Now, there was a bunch of various responses that people would give. But there was always one response that was said by every single person who came through my, my office. And we had that interview. And that one response was pretty simple. They all said in some variant or another, I didn't think it would be like this. I didn't think it would be like this. And it's no surprise if you've been to an army recruitment office, you'll see the, the photos on the wall and all the brochures. And all of people windsurfing all the time and skiing and playing touch footy. And then you get there and you're greeted by people just screaming at you all the time. It's kind of this false advertising. They upsell you to try and get you to come in. The army's a wonderful place to be, of course. But people's expectations did not match the reality of what they experienced. How does Jesus recruit his followers? Look again, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself, put yourself last. Take up your cross daily. The cross is a method of execution. Be willing to die for the name of Jesus. Be willing to die as part of following Jesus, as so many people have done and do on this earth, but also put to death your selfish ambition and desires. And then look what he says. I believe this is the scariest part of this sentence for Christian people. Follow me. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus in what way? Well, remember, how did Jesus define his life again? Rejection, suffering, and death. Yes, hope to come, but first the grave. And so as clearly as possible, Jesus is saying to every single person who is a Christian or has considered being a Christian, I'm going to suffer and die to be my disciple. You must do as I you could summarize what Jesus says in this way. The shape of the Christian life is shaped by the shape of the life of Jesus. Let me repeat that. The shape of the Christian life is shaped by the shape of the life of Jesus. And so the outcome, the prospective outcome, the articulated and promised outcome of being a Christian is suffering. It's rejection. It's death. Yes, hope to come, resurrection in the body and the soul, but first the grave. Now, let's just take a step back for a moment. You've got to admit here, this is a pretty unique recruitment strategy, isn't it? It's a pretty unique way to try and attract people. Jesus came as a king, but insists he's a servant. He attempts to attract his followers, not by promising money, not by promising abundance and prosperity, but suffering. He makes it clear that to be a Christian is not just about believing, although it is about believing. My dear friends, it is about believing, but it's also about following. But the key question for us at this moment, and I think it's for all of us, whether a Christian of long standing, a Christian for a short time, someone not sure where you are, or someone who's not a Christian, is what does following Jesus look like in practice? We're at this moment now where Jesus has made these declarations. What does it actually mean for us to, to take the theory of what Jesus says and to put it into action. Not long ago, I was speaking at an event here at church 
And I spoke about following Jesus. You know, being a Christian is, is following Jesus. And a bloke came up to me afterwards, a great guy, who's since become a Christian, by the way, but he wasn't a Christian at the time. And he came up and goes, Dave, you spoke about following Jesus. What do you mean following him? Following him where? To the shops? What do you mean following Jesus? If following Jesus is such a crucial part of the Christian practice, how do you define it? What does it look like in practice? Well, let's think about it for a moment. What does it mean to follow anyone? Well, it's to do what they do, to follow in their footsteps, to act as they act, to walk along the path that they've walked ahead of you. Following Jesus means to attempt to do as he did, to live as he has lived, to walk in the path that he has walked, to act as he acted. Think of it this way. It's to grow, to become like him. Not geographically. You don't have to move to Jerusalem or Israel. Not physically. You don't have to grow a beard. But in character. Now, what is the character of Jesus that we are to aspire to growing towards? Well, there's much that could be said here, of course. There's billions of words that have been written about the character of Jesus by many, many people. And the, the Gospels, the part of the Bible that we're looking at, the biographies of Jesus, talk about and display many elements of Jesus' character. But I think, and not just me, many people would say that the one aspect of Christ's character that most of us would agree defines and summarizes him can be defined in just one word. Love. Jesus is love incarnate. And that word means human form. Love made flesh. Love personified. We see that again and again in his biographies. You see it in many different ways, but you see it play out predominantly in two major loves that he has in his life. Number one, Jesus is utterly captured and consumed by his love for God. Make no mistake, when Jesus lived on earth, the first place of his heart was not reserved for you or for me. It was not for Mother Mary. It was not for Joseph. It wasn't for the other disciples. The first part of his heart, the biggest, biggest um, direction of his love was focused towards his Father in heaven, God. You see that in the way that he acted. He proactively and reactively sought to love and honor God in all things. Jesus loved God. But secondly... And, and this is no distant silver medal here. The love that Jesus shared with God as God then overflowed to being a capturing and a consumption of a love for people. Jesus loves people. He loves human beings. He loves me. He loves you. You see it everywhere throughout the Gospels the way he shows compassion to the sick and the poor, the way he commands his followers to do the same, the way he treats his enemies, forgiving them again and again and again. Now there's thousands, literally thousands of practical examples of where we see this love and action for us to learn from in Jesus' life. But there is, of course, one place where both these loves, a love for God and a love for people, coalesce and combine together, where it's put on display for us in crystal clear, high definition. And that is actually at Jesus' death. I want to just remind you of something Jesus said in verse 22. You know that mission statement that he makes? Look how he defines his death when he talks about being killed. He doesn't say, I will be killed. He doesn't say, I'm going to be killed. I want to be killed. He says, must 
be killed. I must die. Not this will happen, but it has to happen. And not long after he said these words, he stepped off towards Jerusalem, the epicenter of the hostility and opposition towards him. And it happened as he said it would. The question is, why? Why did Jesus say he must die? And why did he then put into motion the plan for it to happen? The answer is love. Jesus loves God, God the Father. And it was God's will that this would happen. But also, Jesus loves you. He loves you. He died in your place so that you could be forgiven. Forgiven for what? Forgiven for not living the way that God has designed us to live. God has designed each of us to love him and to love others. But when we're honest with one another, and I'm not saying you're worse than me or I'm, when we're honest with each other, with ourselves, we know we fall far short of that expectation, of that standard. We don't love God the way that we should. And because we don't love God the way that we should, we don't love people the way that we should. And that creates within us a burden that we carry, that that's called sin, a rejection of God, a disobedience towards God. It's a weight that we carry on our souls. And no matter what good we do to try and get rid of it, it's a weight that remains, a stain that can't be pushed out, a burden that is carried around by all of us. And Jesus died to take it from us. Let me try and explain it in a different way. I wonder if you've ever been hiking before or bushwalking. I don't mean going out to Crackneck and doing like a 20-minute walk and calling that a bushwalk. I'm saying actually going overnight for a week, okay, for a long-term hike or bushwalk. Now, if you've done that, you'll know that there's two, there's a million challenges, but there's two predominant challenges at placing. Number one is walking. You think walking is easy, okay, but when you do it for kilometers after kilometers after kilometers, it is the worst. Walking is very difficult. But number two, and number two compounds the problem you have with number one, your pack. Oh my goodness, your pack. See, the problem is, the juxtaposition, the paradox of going bushwalking for a long period of time is that the longer you go, the heavier your pack has to be. You've got to fill it with all the things you need to do in order to survive for that time. A tent, a sleeping bag, your food, your water, medical supplies, change of socks, change of clothing, everything. Now, when you go on these long walks, something very interesting happens both mentally and physically. Okay, you put the pack on, for the first 10 minutes, you feel amazing. You feel like Usain Bolt after finishing 100 meters. You feel like you could do anything. There is no mountain too big. One hour later, <gasps> this is just, it might just be me. I don't think it is. <gasps> Sweat pouring out of every single gland that you've got. Okay, You just hate your pack. You wish you could burn it. Okay, It is the worst. It rubs into your hips. It strains on your shoulders. It's the worst experience ever. You hate it. But then something captivating happens. A few hours, maybe a day or two later, you stop hating your pack. Why? It hasn't got lighter. You haven't got stronger. It hurts just as much as it ever did. What's happened is that mentally, you get used to it. You accept it. You accept the dark and dim reality that this is your existence now. It has to be that way. So you trudge on, step on, step after step after step. 
All you can do is not think about the weight that you're carrying because the moment you think about it, you're reminded of its weight and its burden. My friends, the Bible is clear to us that all of us have a burden. All of us have a weight that we carry. But it's not water and rubbish. It's not clothes. It's sin. It's the way we've treated God. It's the rejection that we've given him and then the way that we've acted towards one another. Now, at first, it's not that big a deal, is it? You might do it once or twice. You're aware of it. But Fast forward a week, a month, a decade, 20 years. Now you don't even notice that it's there. Oh, it is, of course. The minute you start thinking about it, you're reminded of it. And so you do good things to try and rub it out. You pretend that it doesn't mean anything. You pretend that you can bury it and walk away from it. But you can't. It's there. You've just got used to it used to the new existence of the burden that you carry. And so you trudge on and on and on. We act like it doesn't matter the things that we do, the way that we've acted, but the truth is it does matter because we matter. And the Bible makes it clear that the reality of our existence is that no matter what we do, we have a burden that is too big for us to get rid of. And we will struggle on carrying it all the way to the grave. And that's why what Jesus says here is so remarkable. Jesus says, confirms that he is the Messiah, the promised Savior King. But he also says simultaneously in the same breath that he must die. How will this Messiah save God's people? It's not with a sword, it's not with an army. It's not by overthrowing a temporary government or oppressive force. It's on the cross by his death. It's his blood that is shed that gives victory. It's his death that he chose to die that gives freedom. Why? Because my dear friends, I want you to imagine that just before he went to the cross, Jesus leant down to you. And he puts his hands under your shoulder straps of your pack. And he says, give it to me. I will take it for you. Let go. Let me take it. See, on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus does for every Christian. He takes their pack and he puts it on himself. He walks to the cross on purpose. He chooses to die so that you won't have to face judgment for the life that you've lived, for the things that have filled up in your pack. He chose to die because he chose you. The one who knows more about you than anyone, the one who's seen every single thing, who knows the worst of you, loves you the most. That's Jesus. That's what he does for us. He does it so that you can live. He does it because he's love. You know, as has already been mentioned uh, this morning, Father's Day can be really hard. It can be a day when you remember how badly your own father has failed you or the father that you no longer have or the father that you never had. Or it could be the day you remember your own failures as a father. It could be a day that you have the deep longing of being a father and you're not or your child has passed or you no longer see your children. I have an experience 
like that in my life. Let me tell you, before I was a Christian, I hated Father's Day. But the heartbeat of what we're learning today is that whilst all of us have our pain and resentment and disappointment and regrets concerning our own families and our own relationships and the way that we've lived and the way that we've been treated here on earth, Jesus died so that you could be reconciled with the heavenly Father, the Father of all things who will not leave you nor forsake you, the one who sent Jesus to die on your behalf because he loves you. Now that's a father. That's God. And that truth about God has, has urgent consequences for us, whichever place you find yourself. You might find yourself as a Christian, as a non-Christian, someone who wants to become a Christian, someone who's not sure. Wherever you are, there's huge consequences for us. My friends, if you're watching today as a Christian, but a Christian um, in a spiritual dry patch that might have lasted weeks or decades, it's very possible in my experience that whilst you are saved, Jesus has taken your pack of unforgiven sin and taken your punishment for you. You know that. You've replaced that pack with another one. And you've filled that pack with a lackluster spiritual life. Frustration, half-hearted relationship with God, resentment, disappointment. You've expected your Christianity to be one thing, but it's been something completely different. My friends, if this is you, I want to suggest to you today that the reason you're experiencing that might have far less to do with your particular circumstances and situations in your life that has led to this position and is actually far more likely to be because of a misapprehension and misunderstanding of the very nature of the Christian life that comes from a misunderstanding and misapprehension about the very nature of Jesus' life. How does Jesus define his life? Suffering, rejection, death. And if you would follow me, you must do the same. I wonder, is that what you expected? Is that what you thought it would be like? Friends, as Christians, we are not called to prosperity and abundance and probably the biggest idol in my and our lives, comfort. That's not the call. The call is suffering and rejection and death, to take up your cross and die. But I'm not saying that Jesus is promising a miserable existence, an unhappy existence. After all, look at the life of Jesus. He's the opposite of misery and unhappiness. His life was defined by joy and love. No. What Jesus is saying is that where you will find your purpose, where you will find your joy, where you will find your love will not be in the things which perish in this world, the comfort, the money, the abundance, the prosperity, but you find it in self-sacrifice, in service. You find it in the place that Jesus did in doing the will of your Father in heaven who loves you and sent his Son to die for you. It's all about God. That's your life as a Christian. It's all about him, serving him, throwing away your ambitions and desires and following his Son. And so if you've got that pack filled with lackluster faith, half-hearted spirituality, a resentment and frustration, that you don't think God has done the things that you do, but you realize now that, hold on, what was I expecting? He doesn't promise that. He promises eternal life and a life of fulfillment in him. 
Well, my friends, I want to encourage you this very morning to take that pack and take it off. And again, bring it to the foot of the cross. Remind yourself that your God and his son love you. That Jesus loves you. And that he is willing to carry your burden. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. But my friends, if you're watching this today and you're not a Christian, if you're not sure where you stand with God, well, let me ask you now, who do you say Jesus is? If the answer is, I thought he was one thing, but now I realize actually he's the Messiah who came to save and to lead. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you this very morning to put your faith and trust in him. But it could be that you're at a part of your spiritual journey where you're still discovering things about Christianity. What I want to encourage you towards this morning is not to stop. Don't take this talk this morning as the end state of this discovery, but actually the beginning. Dig deeper into Jesus. Jesus is God's King who's come to serve and to save you. Understand that a Christian isn't someone who's earned God's love, but someone who's accepted it and received it. Accept his offer on your behalf, believe and follow him. Begin your journey, discover him and understand him. Uh, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and I'd love for you to do the same. Let me finish by praying. Father, thank you that you are all we need. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the dead, to suffer and be rejected for us. For those of us here who know and love you as Father, Lord, we pray that we would follow you the way that we're called to with everything, that we would be your children, that we would serve you and desire above all things to do your will as your son did. And Lord, for those here today who are not Christians, I pray for your work in their hearts, bringing them to you, revealing your truth to their souls so that they may know the tremendous privilege, um, the incredible joy and delight of calling you Father. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.